Welcome to the Cultured Broad Podcast, where we like to pretend that we're more sophisticated than we really are. I'm your hostess, Rasha Shaker. Another episode of Cultured Broad. My name is Rasha Shaker, your hostess. And today I have with me Mary Beth uh, Jakey. How are you today? I'm doing well, Rasha. How are you? I'm doing great. So I have to say, when I got the information about you as being um, this badass secret agent, <laughs> secret service agent, I was like, wow, I just have to interview her. So um, just tell me a little bit about your background and how in the world do you even get started in secret service, especially as a yeah. woman? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the running joke about how do you become a Secret Service agent is I I filled out the paperwork because it's so onerous. There's so much paperwork involved. There's so many different phases. Um, it's not just the paperwork, it's the amount of time. Um, but how my path was, uh, I was a junior in, in high school and I was taking an elective in like law and criminal justice or something. And I was like, oh my God, like I just discovered what I want to do with my life. And I'm going to be an FBI agent. And uh, my father at the time worked in a company where one of his fellow uh, executive vice presidents was a former FBI agent. So once a year when I was in high school and then beyond even in college, I would go downtown, have lunch with my father. And I would go talk to this man whose name was Marlon Johnson. And he used to be the head of the Chicago's FBI office. And I would just get to pepper him with questions um, about life as a federal agent. And if he didn't know the answer, he would literally like do the uh, speakerphone, dial the Chicago field office and say, hey, um, I'm sitting here with a very nice young woman who's going to be a, a, a great agent. Today, and I have a question. She has a question that I can't answer. Can you guys answer this for me? And it was so bizarre to me. But what it because it was like, wow. You know, these are FBI agents. And at the same time, I think, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, was that it also made that life seem more um, doable and more real, like that I could actually become it. Like it didn't seem like it was this pedestal thing, but this was a real man and he was talking to a real person. And although I still thought very highly of that, it still made it more um, acquirable, I guess would be the word I would use. And so my path was I studied criminal justice at college and I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, I minored in Spanish, which has been very helpful in my career. And then um, after college, I went and lived in Spain. So my junior year, second semester, I studied abroad like a lot of people do. I studied in Seville, Spain, and I loved it. I uh, it, it took me a lot to find. Like, I think I came back one week before my senior year started because I just didn't want to come back. And once I graduated, I told my parents, you know what? I want to be more bilingual. So I'm going to go um, spend a summer in Spain. They're like, hey, cool. You know, I ended up spending three more years. So I did, in fact, become quite bilingual. And I had some naysayers that were like, you can't just go off and, you know, gallivant in Europe and Spain. What are you going to tell people? I, I, I'm going to tell people that I was living in Spain, um, you know, studying the language and the culture. And then I came back. I applied to the DEA and the Secret Service. And really, they were sort of hand in hand in their application processes. Like if I was doing a panel interview for the Secret Service shortly after I do the panel interview for the DEA. And it just so happened that the Secret Service called me first. And um, when they did, I was in a hotel room. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. 
And I was in a hotel room in Miami because I had just come back from Central America with uh, the company I was working with. And I just got a note from my front desk and they're like, hey, so-and-so called you from the Washington field office of the Secret Service. I'm like, okay. So I called. I thought it was just something about, you know, a glitch in the road or something. Because it was only nine months after the application process had started. And they told me that because of my extensive travel in Europe, I should expect to wait about two years to become an agent. I'm like, okay, well, I like the job I'm doing. No big deal, right? So I call up and the guy's like, hey, Mary Beth, how you doing? And I was like, uh great. How are you? And he goes, he starts laughing and he says, I'm calling to offer you a position as a, you know, a special agent in the United States Secret Service. And I was like, I think I was probably speechless, but extremely happy. And then I went to work with them probably about a month after that. And it was during the George Bush senior era. Oh, okay. 1991. That's, that's incredible. So I feel like I have to ask this, as I'm sure you're asked a lot by people. Is it like in the movies, working as a secret, like, service agent, you know, the the tux and the the sunglasses, and, uh, like, is it like that at all, or is it completely different than the movies predicted? Um, I think it depends on the movie, Rasha. I think... um, Different movies. Uh, I'm trying to think of the one with Clint Eastwood and Renee Zell. Uh, Renee, um, what's her last name? It depends on who's consulting in the movie. In other words, sometimes I'm watching a movie where they're they're protection agents or secret service agents, and I'm like, oh my god, we would never do that. That's bull. You know, like no way. And other times I'm like, wow, they must have had a pretty good consultant on that because they're pretty accurate. So. You know, yes, the joke is that they issue us dark sunglasses, you know, the day we become agents. That's a big joke. And earpieces, um, all of those. Like, we have fitted earpieces for our ears, you know, because they can't fall out if you've got to run or you've got to move. Um, Most people wear sunglasses because you want to be able to see if there's a threat. Um, uh, I think some people do it for the cool factor. I won't deny that. (laughs) Um, But I, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just laughing at, like, the sunglasses thing. (laughs) it's true i mean it's just like the stereotypical secret service agent is you know the dark glasses the dark suit the earpiece and like the stern look on their face right and um i think also um it's it's unusual for people to encounter female agents even in this day and age believe it or not like i now granted this was 19 almost what 30 years ago for me um, but to this day, people will say to me, oh, I didn't even know that there were female Secret Service agents. And to, to me, to me, I find that awesome because I think to myself, yes, not only are there, but that makes me feel more special because I, I'm pretty sure that right now the percentage is hovers somewhere around 10 or 11% of agents are females. When I was in, it was about nine. So there were 2000 agents at the time and we were 180 females. So there are a lot of, there's definitely a lot of pros to being, you know, sort of that minority. Um, It had, you know, it's not so positive because there's a lot of sort of chauvinistic and judgy men, but it is traditionally a very male dominated um, career. Okay. So when you were a secret service agent, so what was like the scope of your work? So uh, were, you said you worked in, um, the Bush senior era, did you actually get to follow the president around 
or were there right. others so, in your job? Yeah, let me explain. So I was in the Washington field office, and that is sort of what we'd call the nucleus or the epicenter of the Secret Service. It's where um, the president, the vice president, their families live. So those are our main charges. Um, if they have children or grandchildren, they also fall under Secret Service protection. Children of presidents, if they're over 18, can say no to having protection, but minors cannot say no to having protection. Um, so in the Washington field office, um, the way it works is this. Well, it's not just the Washington field office. The entire Secret Service, the way it works is you put it in a certain number of years, and then eventually, as per your employment track, you will put in uh, a bid, so to speak, for a certain protection detail. A lot of people really want to do presidential protection detail, also known as PPD, or vice presidential protection detail, which is known as VPPD. Um, or there are people that really, quite frankly, prefer the former presidents. So like I know several people when I was in went to work under Jimmy Carter um, and other former presidents. Why? Some people, so when you look at that, like we're talking night and day as far as assignment and responsibility and scope of work for um, a job. So you have the president who is, you know, the biggest target in the world versus, say, Jimmy Carter, who does a tremendous amount of international travel. But I would say the threat level is quite a bit lower than when he was president. So some people like the limelight. Some people don't. So that would be what I would call the inner ring of security for a president. And that takes quite a bit of time, say five to seven to 10 years to then get into doing something like that. And then that's all you do. Your whole life is whatever protection detail you're on, that's what you do. As part of the field office in Washington, D.C., we created what's considered the second ring of protection. So just to review, the presidential protection detail with, with President Bush Sr. would be the people that you saw right close to him the people that were behind him to his left, right, and forward. The second ring would be people like me from the field office. And then there's also a third ring and a fourth ring, just depending on the person, depending on the location, depending on the threat that is assessed. So as a field office agent in Washington, D.C., we had not only responsibilities with the president and the vice president and their families, we also had a um, through DC, lots and lots of foreign dignitaries that come through if they are official visits. In other words, if President Bush at the time invited, say, the King of Jordan, that's considered an official visit and therefore they get Secret Service protection. If a foreign dignitary comes over on their own volition, their, their protection is their responsibility. So we had protection responsibilities there. If the president was taking off on a plane out of Andrews Air Force Base, which is really where Air Force One typically flies out of, and the helicopters as well, we might be, again, that second ring of security at Andrews Air Force Base. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, Russia, the Secret Service also has um, investigative responsibilities. And that we were actually found um, as a firm, as an organization, on counterfeiting uh, investigations. So. Uh, you know, counterfeit money, which still happens all over the world. Uh, we're still responsible for that. Check forgery, access device forgery, which is a credit cards, um, protective intelligence and protective intelligence is a division that investigates the people that threaten the president and his family. Uh, so 
there's actually a fair amount of uh, protection and investigative balance as a field office agent, particularly in Washington, D.C., because you're so busy with protection, it's very challenging to keep up your investigations. That's really fascinating. Um, wow. It was a lot of fun. It sounds fun, but it also sounds very dangerous. It is, but I, I think that was part of of what attracted me. That was part of the allure for me, you know, the, the, um, carrying a weapon for a living, the learning how to do, you know, uh, driving maneuvers to save somebody's life, the defensive tactics, the, the legal, the, so, so the intellectual combined with the physical, uh, both, both being very demanding was a huge uh, attraction to me. Wow. That's, that's really, really cool. Um, so in your, your memoir, cause you, you, you published a memoir, you talk about your, your work at the U S embassy in Colombia and how they needed a female protection agent. Could you tell me a little bit more about that story? Yeah. And just for the audience, uh, my memoir is entitled the protector and it's called the protector in a woman's journey from the secret service to protecting VIPs and working in some of the world's most dangerous places. And yes, Colombia was one of those world's most dangerous places um, at the time. Uh, this was 2003, uh, middle of the year to the end of 2005. So I was there for two and a half years. I was working under the auspices of the US Embassy. I was a contractor uh, for the first year. And what happened there was I was working this was post 9-11. Um, I, I had gotten out of the business and I went back into the business as an instructor in the anti-terrorism assistance program and the VIP protection program. And I was one of five people. And I did that for about a year and a half. And one of my colleagues had already left the team and went to work at the embassy. And he tells me the story that I've had confirmed by people who were there. He says one Monday morning, uh, he's there for the Monday morning briefing and the head of security for the embassy, which is a United States State Department agent, says, OK, you guys, I'm here and I'm, I, I, I've got a request. Uh, I don't think I'd be able to fulfill this request, but I'm looking for a unicorn. And I guess everybody starts laughing. He's like, no, I'm not kidding. But I just want to know, does anybody know a former State Department agent or a former Secret Service agent that happens to be bilingual? that's female that might want to come to Bogota, Colombia. And like lots of people laughed and my former colleague that I just, that had just left uh, working with me raises his hand. He had a mouthful apparently of a uh, breakfast burrito and he raises his hand. He's like, Hey, I know somebody. And a guy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, no, I'm not kidding. And that day they got on the phone and called me and asked me whether I'd be willing to come down as a contractor to protect the minister of defense of Colombia, who at the time was a female our ambassador was a female, and the issue was that the Minister of Defense, being a female, had had outright stated that one of her huge goals was to combat corruption in the in the Colombian military, which historically has been quite corrupt. And so that meant that her goal was to take a lot of money out of their pockets. So they felt that not only did she have not she at risk from outside narco traffickers and um, guerrilla terrorists that also from the inside her own people within the minister ministry of defense were a threat so 
depending on the day, I was told that for the most part, they felt that she was actually a higher threat, um, a risk for danger than the president of Colombia. But so I went down, I accepted the job. I was extremely excited. And um, we were a team of just two people and our responsibility. So I, this is a hilarious story. I, I pretty much um, operate with a poker face. Um, so I'm sitting my very first day at the embassy, sitting with the ambassador, the number two at the embassy, my new boss, who's the head of security for the embassy, and my colleague. And we're sitting there and the ambassador says to me, okay, so you'll be, you'll be protecting the minister of defense, um, the, the vice president, and the mayor of Bogota. And I just like thinking to myself, oh my God, like did they just totally BS me to come down here? Because I was only told that I was gonna be protecting or advising the minister of defense. And long story sh short, the ambassador says to me, I know that Marta Lucia, who was the minister of defense at the time, is a job in and of herself. Just do the job for a month the best you can between those three people and write me a cable and I'll get you another advisor to take over the vice president and the mayor of Bogota. And she kept her word and I was then able to focus just on the minister of defense. And so my official title was the U.S. security advisor to the minister of defense of Colombia. Um, and they they had a lot of issues and I did that advising for two and a half years. But after one year of doing just advising with her, after I let the vice president and the mayor go, um, we started a training academy because we felt that one of the biggest deficits we were finding when we were traveling on these missions and assessing the security for these high leveled people was that these people just didn't have, they didn't have, like when, when, I, when I became a Secret Service agent, I go through a very strict training protocol. Like it's, there's manuals, everything, like everybody goes through the same thing there. They have none. And so what we decided was our budget money was gonna be best used in creating an academy. And so what we did was we created this academy and um, brought through all of the people we were currently working with um, through a three week course. So it was like a, a miniature version of what I went through as a Secret Service agent. Oh, that's really interesting. That's cool. Um, so you also not only did that, so I assume this was after, but after that, uh, that assignment, you were also the first and only female instructor of the State Department <laughs> anti-terrorism assistance. So how did you go from working in Colombia to doing something as major is that right so actually um uh, back up my my life even for my own family is very difficult to keep track of what came first what came next and so what happened was um, i had been working so i was a secret service agent for just a little bit over a year and i then transitioned into the private sector and i worked contracts and you know it's it was literally a time um probably way before your time, but we used pagers for people to contact us. And then we'd find a phone and call somebody and it'd be like, hey, can you get on a plane today and work a protection gig for three months in you know, Detroit, Michigan? Um, but along the way, I, I, I was working a gig, uh, a State Department contract in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And I worked that for about eight months. And suffice it to say, uh, I... I don't have the proper words, but I'll just call it that I got a little bit burned out. And I said to myself, you know, 
I need to get out of this business and I need to get my butt back into graduate school. So I went, I dropped out of life. And this was 10 years after I had gotten my undergraduate degree in criminal justice. And I decided to go back for a master's in forensic psychology at John Jay College in New York City. And I did that for two years. And this was 1998 and 1999. So at the end of 1999, when I finished my degree, I said, you know what? I can live anywhere I want now because I'm going to work in this field called stalking when it was just becoming, I mean, there was only one state at the time that had a law, which was California against it. I'm going to move to San Diego, which has been my dream place. I'm going to move to San Diego and I'm going to make myself, I'm going to make a career in this niche business that is so new. I feel like it's going to be a great business for me. So about what two, you know, 2001, 9-11 happened. So I'm working happily and, you know, violence against women, which incorporates stalking, domestic violence, rape. I was doing a lot of public speaking. Then 9-11 happens. And I called the Red Cross in New York City. Hey, you know, happy to volunteer my services. I got my graduate degree there. You know, I feel really indebted, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, you know, we appreciate your call, but we really have an abundance of volunteers. We really don't need your help. Here's a list of other organizations you can call. So I kept calling, kept calling, kept calling, kept getting the same answer. Thank you so much for calling, but we really have an overabundance of volunteers. We don't need your service. Ironically, the summer before, so this is 2001, before 9-11 happens, I had received a call from that same guy I'd worked with in Colombia who said to me, listen, they're starting this program, the Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program, which already existed, but they're starting this new academy in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're moving it out of D.C. They're creating this whole new academy. I'm supposed to put together a team of five instructors. Would you consider? I was like, ah, gosh, you know, I don't I don't really know, Tom. Um, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. I'm kind of out of the business now. But, gee, I have a trip planned already to the southwest. So why don't I swing by and add a day or two just so I can check out the academy? I do. So fast forward, 9-11 happens. They don't want my help in New York. And I say, what better way to serve my country than to train through this program called the Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program. And what that program was about was our U.S. government uses a certain amount of tax dollars to um, maintain, to create and maintain um, friendly relations with various countries. So the countries that came over to get training from the various programs. We were not the only program in the anti-terrorism assistance program. We were just one, it was the VIP protection program. And we would bring what were called friendly foreign nationals because, you know, obviously we aren't gonna bring our enemies over and train them in our tactics, right? We wanna be able to help these people keep their number one, say, be it a king, a prime minister or a president alive. So groups of between 18 and 24 would come over, typically um, on presidential or details that were protecting their number ones or somehow related to the protection of that individual. And they would get three weeks of training from us, the five of us, um, in everything, again, sort of similar to what I was doing down in Bogota, which was the driving, the shooting, the defensive tactics. Um, we would talk about human rights. We talked about, you know, use of force. Um, even basic radio communications. So that's how I ended up doing that. That's what led into Bogota. So the anti-terrorism assistance program happened literally within one month of 9-11. And we trained the country of Bangladesh was our very first country. I did that for a year and a half. And then that transitioned into that offer from the embassy in Bogota, Colombia. 
see. Got it. So, um, yeah. had quite the career. <laughs> um, it's dizzying, Rasha. I know it's hard to keep track of. I know. And I guess that's part of the appeal of it. Um, and how, how did you manage to navigate through all of this as a woman in <laughs> prestigious government agencies? Yeah, uh, that's a really, really great question. Uh, I think that is something that really comes across in The Protector, in my memoir, of the, the there's a lot of pros. I mean, as a female, like say, for example, starting in the Secret Service, you're 9%, I was at the time 9%, one of 9%, right, of females in the Secret Service. To me, again, again, my perspective tends to be on the rosy side. I tend to see the glass half full. I tend to shift focus to what's the positive. So while I was going through training, yes, there were fellow male agents that were brutal. Um, what are you doing here? You should go home. This is, you know, a man's world, blah, blah, blah. And that really honestly just fueled me to do better and to show and to show them up, to show them that not like I do it, I'm probably going to do it better than you. Um, I think that part of my upbringing that plays into that was, is that I was always my whole family, uh, as a family of athletes and very competitive, uh, very good athletes. And I was a volleyball player. Um, so, um, you move into this world that's very male dominated, very, we used to say like the testosterone, you know, driven world of protection and, Part of me really loved it because I always had a lot of guy friends growing up and can relate well to men. Um, but part of it can be lonely depending on where I was operating. And a lot of countries I was able, you know, either certain other parts of a mission might be females or I'd meet like in Colombia, I made a lot of friends. In fact, I'm still very good friends with two of the women I met there. One of them, in fact, I introduced to a friend and they're married and now live in Georgia. But, um, you know, a place like Haiti became very lonely because you didn't interact with the locals because it's just, it was such a different culture and a different world. So, you know, the pros of being around men or, can get annoying, but it can be great. You know, the, the egos um, can be interesting, can be entertaining. Um, it's, I know somebody asked me recently, like, did you feel did you feel that you were treated as an equal? And I would say it depended on the mission. Oftentimes I would have to prove myself. And that was true in the secret service too. Um, that as a female, you know, they just start waiting for you to screw up. And as males, they just kind of like, let it go. They don't really care. So, you know, that constant having to prove yourself. But I, I think that is kind of who I am. I think that's why I've worked so many different missions and so many different jobs and gone back to school, you know, a couple of times. I am looking for that constant challenge, that what have you done for me lately type kind of mentality, if you understand what I mean. <clears throat> gotcha. What are, if you were to speak to a room filled with women who um, aspire to work in government, uh, maybe not necessarily the Secret Service, but um, as I would imagine, um, working in the government as a whole can be um, male, macho dominated. 
what would be your advice to those women who um, want to pursue that particular career track? Yeah, don't let any don't let any of that minutia in your brain get in your way because we can talk ourselves out of anything, right? As females in particularly, but I would say, you know, because I I do I have spoken to groups of females and I talk to many many many. I'm currently teaching at George Washington University. I teach psychology. And I have a lot of female students ask me if I can meet on the side because they have careers that they want to pursue in government or in in um, law enforcement. And they say, but, you know, it's still so male dominated, whatever. I say, yeah, but so what? You get to be one of the few. You know, think about the other side of the not so positive facets of it. You get to be one of the few. You get a lot of privileges. You There are really a lot of pros. And I personally would say to these women, and it, it sounds however it sounds, I would never let a man get in the way of me fulfilling my dream. I wouldn't let anybody get in the way of me fulfilling my dream, never mind some guy that thinks, oh, this is a male-dominated world, you shouldn't be in it. Bull, right? Like, I I know I did, not only was I one of the few, I actually was a standout, just like a lot of the women, because I think, you know, they're more the creme of the creme of who ends up applying because there is sort of that fear factor of, oh, am I going to make it? Are they going to pick me? Is it even worth it? You know, oh, they're going to pick a guy over me, but it's not true. They really, and that's another thing I would say, they really need females and they really want them. The percentage, Rasha, of 9, 10, 11, 12% in law enforcement isn't because women aren't applying. It's because what happens is women are the ones who are leaving to say, start families, get married. Uh, one of my really close girlfriends that I went through training with, I just um, had lunch with her a few weeks ago. She left because her husband was an agent. Her husband, he just recently retired. They had kids and she didn't want them both to not be at home while raising their kids. So she said, okay, he has to do what he has to do, but I'm gonna be home with the kids. So she chose to step down as an agent and that is not uncommon. So that is a huge reason why a lot of like, they'll say, oh, there aren't a lot of women at the top levels of the secret service. Well, there aren't a lot of women that have been in there for a full career yet, right? So it's a tricky business to try to keep us and keep those percentages up. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So don't give up on your dream and go for it. And you can, you can make great headway and great, you know, if you want to stay in it for a career, you're going to do well. That's, that's incredible. That's really inspiring. Um, so unfortunately we have to wrap up here, but uh, I just wanted to ask one more question is uh, the protectors out now, uh, where can people go and, and purchase the book? Right. So um, Rasha is actually being published April the 16th on Amazon. There is a pre-order available for Kindle already on Amazon, and I'm working on getting a pre-order for the book on Amazon. So it will be out on April the 16th or just in a couple of weeks, maybe two and a half weeks. Um, and it's uh, hopefully available for pre-order, not just on Kindle, but the book as well, um, sooner rather than later. Awesome. Well, you know, thank you so much, Mary Beth, for taking the time to talk with me. I, I was just enamored by our conversation the whole time. I'm, you know, I, I find this all fascinating. I have an uncle who works in the government, so every time he okay. his ability to talk to me about it, because you know it's classified, I'm always fascinated by how all this works. And you know, sure. I wonder if it's like the movies, or if that's just completely. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Rush. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much. And you, you take care. This has been the Cultured Broad Podcast. Make sure to follow us on social media and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter by going to culturedbroad.com. Until next time.